Welcome to my dumb podcast. Today's special guest is Cole Arthur Riley, who is a creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. Cole was born and for most part raised in Pittsburgh, where she studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Today, she shares about spirituality, Black liturgies, white male God, belonging, and community, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Homebrew Christianity is having an open online class, Experiencing God, Discerning the Divine in Human Experience. It is from some of the recordings from Homebrew Christianity's famous Theology Beer Camp. Guests such as Diana Butler-Bass, Peter Enns, Adam Clark, and myself will be part of the class hosted by the one and only Trip Fuller. This class is free, but donations are welcome. Please do join this class. Yuzu no Hana is a premier Japanese restaurant in downtown Toronto with a focus on serving high-quality sushi paired with delicious sake. The fish that are served are fresh from Tokyo's Toyosu Market and prepared carefully from the hands of our chefs, who have an abundance of experience working in the best restaurants in Toronto and around the world. This, of course, is complemented by a world-class selection of sake that range from smooth to dry. We look forward to serving you. For more information, visit www.yuzunohana.ca. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Hello, welcome to Madame Podcast. Today's special guest is Cole Arthur Riley, who is the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest, and a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Born and for the most part raised in Pittsburgh, Cole studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh. She once took a professor's advice very seriously to begin writing a little every day and has followed it for nearly a decade. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Ashley C. Ford, who is a New York Times bestselling author, wrote, this is the kind of book that makes you different when you are done. So welcome, Cole. I am just so excited to have you here on Madang. I think you are one of my youngest guests. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you for having me and inviting me into your space. Well, thank you so much. And I feel like our lives have been intersecting in the sense that um, you graduated from UPIT and my youngest son is actually studying at Pitt. So I thought that was quite interesting. And yes. every time, yeah, isn't that interesting? I don't know. I think you're like 10 years older than him. But every time um, I want to encourage him, I say, well, Cole is a New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> is he a writer? No, he's not. But I just want to encourage him that, hey, you, you know, she went to Pitt and you're at Pitt and she's a New York Times bestselling author. So he just smirks at that. And then the other cross section is um, you're somehow working at Cornell. Tell us what you're doing at Cornell. Well, I actually just left this position recently, but I was the spiritual teacher in residence for Cornell's Office of Spirituality and Meaning Making. So a lot of what I did was um, write write resources and offer programming for students to think about what it means to be human, what it means to be human in a university context. Um, yeah, a, a lot of spiritual formation integrated with kind of embodied exercises, embodied practices. Uh, I already miss it, but it was it was time to transition more into to writing. 
Oh, wow. Because I thought you were still there. And I was going to say, my daughter is a senior at Cornell. So I thought, wow, this is like so much intersecting here. Both my kids are somehow connected to the places either where you studied or where you, well, now where you have worked. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so I was getting all excited. She's a senior. So I thought, oh, next time I visit Ithaca, I can come and visit you at your office. Well, I'm still local, so you can always reach out and yeah. Okay. That'll be great. Cause I know I love to meet my guests. And before I had you, I had, uh, I had Dean Kelly Brown Douglas and I've never met her in person too, but I've admired her from afar. And um, last November I was at the American Academy of Religion, which is where professors of religion go and um, me and my friend were just going to have brunch. And then we ran into her. So that was like such a thrill to to meet one of my guests. So hopefully one day, uh, either in Ithaca or elsewhere that we can meet, you know, she'll be graduating in May. So after that, there might be less opportunity. But I just <laughs> found, you know, these intersections so interesting. So now that you're focusing more on writing then. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so, you know, I know you're so young and, you know, when I, so actually before we get into the book, because I just love your book so much, tell us how you kind of started the Black Liturgies and who is it for? And like, I didn't know who you were, but it just kept coming at me in different ways. So that's how I came to know who you are. So tell us a bit about Black Liturgies, because I'm sure, you know, you've got a ton of followers, but still there may be people who out there who may have not heard of Black Liturgies. Sure. Yeah. I started Black Liturgies the summer of 2020, I think the beginning of July. Um, And I was really, I don't know, I was craving a space. I mean, so much was happening in the world. the summer of 2020, um, George Floyd, we were reckoning with the murder of George Floyd. And prior to that, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and this kind of cluster of very public deaths. Uh, and we were in the coming up into an election season, in the midst of an election season. So there were a lot of um, divisions, of course, along religious lines. And I think Uh, a lot of black people not all but a lot of us were kind of looking around and realizing we're not as safe in the religious space as we occupy as we believed ourselves to be um and I just wanted I just wanted to I, I I think I started it you know, kind of imagining it to be this real intimate community. So I, I love liturgy. I began attending an Episcopal church um, when I graduated Pitt. Uh, I began attending one in outside of Philly and fell in love with written prayer. But I was finding that a lot of the prayers that I was encountering in that specific season or even liturgies that you know were familiar to me from for years at that point had begun to feel very distant and inaccessible and I was like okay well maybe I can gather like a dozen of us who love liturgy and also want to be kind of free and liberated in our blackness and in our emotions and in our bodies and let's see who I can find and I just started sharing um little prayers sometimes poems and quotations from black thinkers and um creating this space which has since grown yeah yeah so big and you know I didn't grow up with liturgy and Um, Now that I'm kind of doing this uh, part-time interim thing at a Presbyterian church, you know, I'm more interested in liturgy, but I'm sure many of the people that come across, you know, your Instagram with Black liturgies are just so grateful because I think they just, for me at least, I can say, they really um, enlighten me, give me encouragement, give me like food for thought, like maybe a daily, daily kind of, um, stroke of inspiration so I'm just so grateful and I feel like 
you know, only like older, like older in age, I feel like are, will be able to come up with these words of wisdom, but there you are so young. And it just, that in itself is so inspirational to me. I'm like, well, how can this young person <laughs> come up with these? So what is your source of inspiration? How do you, I know you um, quote other people and you bring it in these, you know, I think you young people have a term for those posts. What are they called? Because I remember some young person was telling me about it and I can't remember what they are called. Is there so a name? I, I'm going to embarrass myself because I like for my age, I'm like really awful at like knowing lingo. So if there's a name for it, I would love to know it. Um, but Someone but I, told me a few years ago, they said, oh, we need a young person to come up with these things. But I think that's exactly what you're doing. But anyway, it is just so good. And it, you're curating all of this. So I think we're just so grateful for it. So have you always kind of grown up with all this liturgy or because of what happened in our social context and especially this American context of racism and um, killing of black bodies? Is that what made you rethink about liturgy? You know, yeah, I wasn't raised in a Christian home or religious home. Um, I think my house, you know, in hindsight, I think we possessed a spirituality uh, more in the shape of like storytelling and mm -hmm. myth and humor and things like that, but, but never organized religion apart from this very strange year of life where we attended a Baptist church with my great aunt. I talk about that a bit in my book, but um, I didn't really begin going to church until college and wow. um, kind of found a home or, or I just took a lot of interest in in the, the Christian biblical story. I thought the people were really interesting and the God was really beautiful and terrifying. And um, so I think maybe like from a literature standpoint, initially, I was kind of really fascinated by the biblical text and then grew into that and found myself in a lot of Christian spaces uh, in college, in increasingly so, uh, to the point where by the time I graduated college, I went to work in, in part, kind of between two places, between a Episcopal church outside of Philly and uh, in partnership with a small Catholic university. So encountering kind of mm -hmm. high church or I'm trying to think of a more accessible term uh than that for, for listeners or it, it was the first time I was in, encountering kind of a formal liturgical expression and uh I was also kind of in a position of leadership not over the liturgical service or anything like that but in leadership in other ways and small groups and whatnot fell in love I it was during a season where I was intensely depressed I was in an intense season of depression and was just kind of exhausted of manufacturing language myself to talk to God and communicate with the divine and I found a real harbor in liturgy and just kind of the rest of it, of rest of being offered something that I didn't have to work so hard to create, you know? Um, and so I, you know, fell in love with it in that way. By the time 2020 came, I was in a, a different, a different space and in a more creative space myself. I've, I've always written, I, I studied writing at Pitt and have loved writing since I was a little girl. And I think in times of kind of severe crisis, there are some of us who are kind of like, I don't know, driven to to think, okay, well, what like what am I going to do or how am I going to rise to meet this? Uh, I'm typically not that person. I'm more of a like hide under the blankets for two weeks and like eat Skittles for breakfast and like wait until it passes over. And it wasn't passing over. And I think with an increase in sorrow came like an increase in a creative like spark and I'm and I, to the point where I'm like I just need to do something and I needed to bridge the space between you know my spirituality and my creative expression which just happens to be writing so that's why that's that's how I came to like black liturgies I think if there was anything I was going to share with the world in in 2020 it was going to be writing um 
because wow. that's just what felt nearest to me. Yeah. Wow, that's so, in so many ways, it's so inspirational that um, you came to kind of the spirituality while you're at UPIT because, I, you know, I'm preaching most Sundays and I'm texting my youngest, oh, are you at church? He's never at church. <laughs> I said, well, you got to find some, you know, religious community because he grew up in the church and then he's so absent. Meanwhile, my daughter who's at Cornell is at church all the time and all these like church fellowships she's at, et cetera, et cetera. But my youngest is like, oh, and I and I told him over this break, you know, you gotta go find a church. And I said, there's a Korean church. And then he says, oh, mom, it's so far because I can't get up. And I said, well, just go to some local. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I had the exact opposite experience where I, I told my parents, you know, I, I think I'm like, I might be a Christian. I might start going to church. People tell me that's what they do. And they were like wide-eyed and kind of horrified. What's going to become of her? What will, we can't put her in the hands of these. And I feel like, you know, accepting, but very subtly trying to make sure I hadn't kind of I hadn't lost the plot of my own selfhood, my own blackness, whatever. Um, they're they're a lot less concerned about that now. But I, I think for me, coming into it in college, maybe just that sense of agency and that sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. I was asking. I and I, I don't think this is all that unusual. Maybe the way I went about it is a bit unusual. But I think most people around that age, you know late teens, early twenties are beginning to ask like existential questions for maybe the first time in their life, even if they don't name them as that. It's like, you're wondering like, what is the, like, what is this for? Am I really, you know? And I was having a lot of those kind of big questions and um, yeah, but, but, you know, it was for better and for worse. Cause I also found myself in uh, a, a lot of white dominated Christian mm -hmm. spaces, uh, which many fellowships are for a number yeah. of reasons, support raising being no small part of that and the kind of staff you're able to get if you are demanding people fundraise their salaries, uh, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about that. <laughs> but um, a lot of these fellowships tend to be white dominated and, and that's where I found myself and there was some beauty in it, but also I was lucky enough to be able to balance uh, that the the worldview of whiteness mm -hmm. um and at times white christian nationalism at times i was able to balance that with what i was learning in the classroom and experiencing a lot of black writers who i now draw from a lot for black liturgies i was experiencing yeah. a lot of black writers for the first time in college like i i went to pittsburgh public schools I'll tell you back that like I'd never read Toni Morrison before never oh. read Zora Neale Hurston like these people that often you would encounter in high school I hadn't and so I was having this kind of dual awakening in terms of black literature and spirituality that if, if I ever you know began to drift too far into a Christianity that demanded I sacrifice my blackness at its altar I had this black literary awakening kind of pulling me in the opposite direction, bringing me back home to say, you know, there's, there's myth and there's beauty and there's mystery here too. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think, you know, public schools need to do better with uh, introducing diverse authors to young kids in school. And I, you know, you're, you went to Pitts, um, public school in Pittsburgh. My kids went to public school here in PA uh, in Bethlehem. So, you know, it's the same school system. So I think the schools really need to do better. So thank you for sharing that. So, uh, you know, I, th I find that Black liturgies, you know, and I, I did hear you say that you first started it anonymously. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm taking the secret to the bank. And I think I needed to do that initially. Uh -huh. Like, I, I don't know if I could have trusted myself to say what I most needed to say if I had just began as Cole Arthur Riley mm. um, and I think slowly the more I talked about the body actually the more I began to feel this kind of like something gnawing at me thinking like you know you've you've effectively divorced your entire body from this space and what would it mean to kind of bring your face now and again I still do it very rarely but just um 
for people to know that there's a real body, a real person behind the words. And I had begun to have friends who were, I had two friends actually who were beginning to text me and they're like, I know it's you. Like, I just know that you're the black liturgist. And I'm like, <laughs> what? How do they know? And, I, and I'm like, I just couldn't lie, you know, overtly. So I was like, it's, it's time. Cool. Well, I'm glad you did because in so many ways, uh, we can turn to your fabulous book, um, This Here Flesh. Like, you know, uh, before I get to that question, it's so interesting because, you know, I've, I've written some books and, you know, when it comes to the cover, you know, some, sometimes we have a say, sometimes we don't, but this is one cover that no one will ever forget. I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is such a unique, it's a beautiful cover. And I've seen your picture. It was somewhere on Instagram or somewhere where in, you went to New York and on that billboard, I'm thinking, wow, you, for such a young writer, you have accomplished so much. You are a New York Times bestselling author. You have, you have a picture of yourself with the billboard. I'm like, those are things that I only dream about, which you have accomplished at such a young age. So congratulations on so many levels. But I think this um, cover is just so interesting. Um, I know you, um, the title came from, I think you said Toni Morrison, right? Yes. Uh Did you want to say more about that and how you chose this art? Sure. Um, Yeah. So the the title, it's, it it comes from a, a scene in Beloved or more so a place, a location, the clearing, which has been written a lot about, but uh, it's this kind of space where uh, if you haven't read Beloved, that the matriarch's name is, is Baby Suggs, and she is kind of gathering everyone in the clearing for these spiritual experiences and for her to eventually preach. And 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 the people are kind of waiting on the perimeter of, of the clearing and the trees. And, you know, she says in, in different orders, it's, it's been a while since I read it, but like, let the children come, you know, let your, let your mothers see you dance and the, and the children dance. And she says, you know, woman, um, let, let the woman come, let your, let your husband see you actually it's the men next yeah men let let your let your wives hear you laugh and the men laugh and and last she says uh woman cry for the living and the dead just cry and 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 the woman let loose this kind of um sound of lament and they all get kind of tangled up in each other and are the, the until the men are crying and the children are laughing and the women are dancing and then they collapse into the grass so this beautiful embodied expression, right? The, this beautiful embodied preface of spirituality, theater of spirituality, um, they collapse in the grass and then she gives her message, you know, her, her gospel, which is in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass, love it. And, and she goes on in this um, beautiful monologue about loving the, the physical as a form of she doesn't use the language of salvation but I would but I would call it that and since I've read that passage I've I've always felt you know that's the kind of spirituality I want if this is who I'm going to be I, I want a spirituality of the clearing so um it made really se- it made a lot of sense for me to like put that in the first um chapter and, and call the book that and then this the the cover so I had given them a few symbols <laughs> to work with I knew I wanted it to be a fairly minimal cover but I'd given them a few um symbols and one was roots and one was lungs and they the the illustrator Sarah something with an m I'll uh, look for it as I'm as I'm talking, she kind of blended them together into that illustration. And I just knew, you know, it was going to be like a pink color or that was like the first, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but that was the first color it was Uh drafted in. And I was like, this is almost, this is nearly what I want, except for, I want it to look a lot sadder. (laughs) 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 You know, and you know, the, the, jacket designer she couldn't have known that I'm just tend to be a more solemn person so I literally picked out the 
the hex code color, like <laughs> darkest green that they would allow me to have. Um, and this is what it became, which which I really love. Now, an interesting thing about the symbol is, um, if you've read the book, my grandma is a huge part of the book. Her stories really hold the thing together. And um, while I was editing, she became sick and passed away. The day we finalized this cover is the day that we learned she has she had fibrosis of the lungs. Oh. And it was, yeah, it was strange. I was calling to tell her about, you know, what the cover would look like. And she was answering to tell me a new diagnosis. And I don't, so in that way, I I feel like something is really, it contains some kind of mystery and has become a, yeah, a bit of a mysterious artifact, an yeah. artifact of grief as well. Oh. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I just, and then when you said that you wanted uh, lungs and root or something, and I just went, once you said that, I thought, wow, that does look like roots. I just, I never thought of that. I just thought it was lungs. But then once (laughs) you said it, I just thought, wow, there's just so much, just even on the cover. So if you haven't read the book, I highly suggest everyone to go read the book because when I read the book, I just felt like it was this older, kind of retired, very wise woman sitting there and writing this book because it just, there is just so much depth and so much spirituality, so much um, just important theology. Like I would have never thought a young woman could write with so much knowledge and wisdom and depth and just like it's just so beautifully written I'm just you kind of blew me away it's and it's one of those books you just can pick up and go back as many times as you want because the lines are maybe simple but there's just so much depth into it you weave um your your family story with also biblical story and some theology in there it is it's such an in-depth book. I just, I cannot believe you, a young woman, wrote this. It just blew me away. Thank and you. what, yeah, and what I was going to say is, you know, when you said earlier about the Black liturgies, and then, you know, you first hid yourself, and then, you know, this embodiedness, I felt like you were breaking down dualism. I don't know if you had that intention, but did you have intentions of breaking down dualism by writing this book or was that just by accident? Yeah, I I do think it, it was like a slow unfolding intention. Like the more I was asking myself to articulate what I believe, the more I realized how fluid and how out, outside of, you know, dualism it was. It seemed like everything kept going back, <laughs> back there. So I, I think it, there was intention as I went and and by the time I finished, I certainly think I had a clearer sense of 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 what I think, maybe or maybe not what I think, but um how I think uh, that was important. And I'm glad you recognize that. Also, thanks for saying all those very kind things about my writing because oh, it it blew me away from just you know, I write books, but I'm just I just write them, but I like I don't think of myself as a writer. But you are truly this beautiful writer, like something that many of us aspire to be. And it's so difficult. And for those who don't write books, you know, we just think you just sit there. Although I, I did read that you read you wrote this very quickly, which yeah. blew me away too. How long did it take you? Well, it's kind of, it's my answer is strange, but I, I wrote each chapter apart from the chapter on rage, I wrote in a day. But I would spend a, I would spend like a week leading up to that, thinking uh-huh. about what, just thinking, not really jotting down ideas or things like that, but just thinking and and reading. Um, I suffer from whatever writer syndrome means that you have a hard time stopping and starting again. Like I just need the momentum of it, and so. I've I've always been like this, even in school. It's just like if you're gonna write, you just have to keep writing until you finish, or else I'll never pick up the pen again, so to speak. Um, so that's that's how how I um, how I did it. The chapter on rage it is the exception because 
I managed to write an entire chapter on rage without feeling any, <laughs> and like removed myself and my emotion entirely from it. And I had a very wise editor draw me back to the drawing board a bit. Um, but yeah, it, it 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 does happen fairly quickly for me, and I'm I think that's kind of a, a privilege, honestly. Wow, that that's amazing how you can kind of. Uh, be in that mindset to just keep writing and writing. For me, I have very short attention span and the older I get, the the shorter it's becoming. So I might write like a half a sentence and then I may come back to it in a week and then I couldn't remember what I was writing about. Okay. Now yeah. I read your Wikipedia page before this interview <laughs> and one look at your Wikipedia page, it looked like you had read me, you'd written maybe 20 books dozens I don't know so this is all very fascinating to me whenever you say I don't really think of myself as a writer I'm like, I don't know many people who would write 20 books and not think of themselves I mean I know that you're also an academic of course but it's still just kind of funny to me that none of us really feel like it right but well and but the thing is I think of like you are like this writer writer me I'm just writing like academics so it's a little different and for many of us academics it's so hard to cross over to the type of writing that you're doing because I feel like that is real writing so even though I may have all these books I just feel like you know and I'm so much older than you so <laughs> when you reach my age I'm sure you have written a uh, way more and more in depth too. I'm so much older than you, but thank you so much uh, for your kind words. I really appreciate it. But here, you know, I just, you, you tackle God. So I, you know, going back to dualism, I just love your answer about dualism because in my, you know, theological teaching, I always, and in my writing, I'm trying to uh, break down dualism because I find it so easy. In, in one sense, it was so bad because that's the root of Christianity and it made us really hate our bodies, anything physical because of this dualistic way of viewing. And so I'm glad that when you were doing the Black liturgies, this embodied sense that you were able to put a face and, and it is part of who you are. I think that's so beautiful and it teaches us so much um, of how we kind of have to move away from this dualism, because we know, especially young people, you know, when it comes to their bodies and what they do to their bodies, and um, and it's not just about body, but everything else. We 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 have separated mind, I mean, a, a body from spirit, which is so problematic. But I feel like you're just doing this unpacking so beautifully. So I don't know if you want to say more about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you entirely. And I think that most, if not all, oppressive systems that that I know about, that 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 I've experienced over time, have a lot to gain from us being divorced from our bodies, have everything to gain from us being divorced from our bodies. Um and I, I I've said this in the past, but it's kind of something I've begun to say to myself of like Cole if if you're not in your body someone else is mm -hmm. something else is you know if you're if you're not there if you're not at the helm something else will take the helm and often that looks like kind of in a, the, the most oppressive forms of capitalism and white supremacy and and Christianity frankly that um one can kind of conceptualize and and, and that's because the more uh, separate I am from my from my body, from my physical self, my physical surroundings, the the more numb I am. The more I become accustomed to like life in chains. You know, not to be dramatic, but yeah, a, a life in chains. You get very, you, it can get it become a very familiar feeling if you're unfamiliar with any kind of freedom and and movement and and liberation and connectedness to your physical self. And I say that as someone who like doesn't at all always abide from that. Like it's a daily struggle of oh, integration yeah. and uh -huh. um yeah, but it's it's difficult. And I I think ironically, you know, bringing my physical self into black liturgies, I was worried that this attachment to me would kind of 
I don't know how to explain it, like create a like a, a chasm between people who don't relate to me as a person who don't relate to my body, um, my gender, my whatever. Um, I thought a chasm would be created and it it's it was almost an immediate shift of the kind of interactions I was having with people in DMs and in the the comment section of the kind of intimacy that was achievable. And I know this isn't for everyone because it's not everyone's goal, but for me it was. And so the kind of intimacy that was achievable once I brought my full self into the space um, was 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 necessary, was needed. It's I, I still need to remind myself about that on days where I'm like, oh, I wish no one knew what I looked like. And, you know, I, I never had to show my, I, I probably should show my face on the page more often, but yeah. I'm learning. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, there are so many uh, good pieces of wisdom in your book. Um, there was something about the white God that really stuck out to me because I grew up with the white God. And, you know, it's a daily struggle to, to get away from this white God. So can you share us a little bit about the white God, the white male God? Yeah, that you're about? yeah. sure. I mean, for someone who wasn't raised in the church, I am fascinated that I I still came into Christianity with white <laughs> Jesus. You know, like for all for 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 all of the boundaries that were in my life. I mean, my parents they're they're not religious. It's like I still entered the space. So I, I recognize that my formation was a lot more subtle than people who were raised in you know, a lot of white evangelical contexts of people of color, but still I was formed in, you know, the image of a white male God without ever stepping foot in a church, you know? Um, and that's a, a different kind of terror when you realize that you haven't escaped it, you know, just because you haven't, you don't go to church on Sunday. And it was through college really, um, and in, in reflection about that particular time in my life, uh, I mean, I, even out, out of college, I was working, I, I told you at the small Catholic university, I was finding uh, my journey with Christianity to be very entrenched in academic spaces, which are overwhelmingly white and, and white dominated. And so my spirituality looked a lot like exhaustion, looked a lot like expending myself and, you know, dying to self, our favorite, our, our favorite things to say, die to self, what will you give kind of thing. And so many of us learn that in college Christianity. Okay. So many of us, I mean, you, you mentioned your, your son and his uh, aversion to <laughs> church. Part of me is like, he's going to be editing my podcast. If you're listening to this, save yourself <laughs> because a lot of those spaces, you know, you're going to you're gonna delete this part before he edits. No, 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 but no. so many of those spaces demand that young people sacrifice their bodies mm -hmm. so that they can continue, you know, so that they can go on. There's this real desperation and this real, uh, frankly, degradation of, um, uh, of the body and how can we, how can we use you? And you hear that in our language about God, especially white male God. How how is God going to use you? How I I can't count how many times I heard that. And um, it was on a, a trip to India actually, where it was the first time someone had led me to ask myself, you know, um, what if God doesn't always want to use you? What if sometimes God just wants to be with you? And it was revolutionary because I'd only learned about my relationship to God in this very utilitarian capitalist context of I'm a product, I'm I'm a I'm a tool, I'm something to be used. And you know, I've I've had to unwind that. I think Christina Cleveland, um, who is a scholar and theologian that uh has much more wisdom on me she just she recently wrote a book she it came out around the same time as this year flush called god is a black woman she's a chapter i think called white male god yeah. 
or some, I mean, actually her chapters titles are more clever than that, but she has a whole, I mean, the whole book is about that unwinding these different ways that white male God presents. It's not just through utility, right? It's through a lack of emotion. It's hyper-intellectualism. It's um, a number of things, but I found the, 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 my response has become not to completely dismiss those things, but to find a way to integrate a more like full a fuller story into them so people hear me criticize the hyper intellectualism that's in a lot of white christian spaces that i belong to and they mistake me for being anti-intellectual well that's just simply not the truth it's how do i integrate a kind of intellectualism that makes sense for the black body for black stories and, and black memory into um into that in, instead of using intellectualism as a this hierarchy that makes people think that they're better or closer to god than others it's a long answer but um thank you yeah, for it's a, sharing it's a journey. That, yeah. and i you know i actually uh christina cleveland was a guest of mine too on my dang and i just thought your two books um her uh was it what is her book called? God is a black, God, woman. black woman and your book um, just go hand in hand. She's a hilarious writer. I just oh wish she was thinking about being arrested and all that. It just, it's so imprinted so in my head. And she was sharing with me on Madang too. So I just, and I can't remember the, I think she might have used father white God or something like that. I know she has a very clever way of talking about the white male God mm-hmm. and um yeah, so I thought yours and her book can get, just go really well together. She is a friend of mine, and I just thought, yes, you guys are like sisters here, and the that. books complement. So I hope those who have read her book will read yours and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing about the white male God, because it is so embedded. And for you to say, you know, you didn't even grow up in the church. I grew up in this evangelical church system, so it was heavily ingrained in me. I could not even think of anything outside of that until much later in my life. But for you who didn't grow up and you still had that impact, that just says so much. It says volumes about the big impact of this white male God in our culture, in our society, in our law system somehow. And it just infiltrated everywhere. So I think there's a lot that we need to do. You know, your book touches on so many other things, but there's one about the liberation. And I just thought that was so good. Um, You know, I, when I was in public school, I grew up in Canada. You know, I studied um, the pharaohs in Egypt. And just last November, I was actually in Egypt for COP27. And I saw the Red Sea and I was asking these Egyptians, oh, is this where Moses uh, crossed the Red Sea? And it was just, you know, these responses, but it was quite exciting to be there. And then you bring in, you know, you said, um, to quote you, you said, God didn't raise up Moses just to flee them from Pharaoh. They were liberated to somewhere. It seems to me that God's promise is always a place, a liberation born of location. That was so impactful for me because I do so much liberation theology, you know, liberation, you know, Christianity needs to be liberated. So I don't know if you want to tell us more about this liberation born of location. Yeah, I think, you know, I used to think about liberation as more of this mental exercise or this like mental place. Uh-huh. I mean, a disembodied one, uh, you could say. And um, it, it took time, but I think, it, I don't know, maybe I'm only 32, but, you know, as I've gotten older, I've experienced <laughs> more homecomings and that sense of nostalgia, that sense of grief, whatever that strange entanglement is that happens when you return home. Um that's led me to reflect on how the place that I'm from has formed me and how I'm consistently being formed by place. And I just, when I encounter the Christian story, it seems like there's so, so much richness to the actual location, to the actual setting. Um, I'm, I'm horrible at geography. I'm, I'm, I'm usually horrible at paying attention to my surroundings and I'm very in my head. So it's a practice to to believe that, you know, the 
the the the the barn that the barn swallows that circle the barn out out back are actually doing something to me I'd much rather think about what the book I'm reading is doing to me than how am I being formed by you know just walking around the the perimeter of our our property again and again and what what truths do I see in the place that formed me it's, so it's a formation that's not always liberation but um it can be a formation of terror but I think obviously so so many historical wounds have come from the stealing of place the degradation of land um the just neglect and uh completely human-centered approach we've taken to to most things and even our art at times um and so you know to to undo that I've had to practice a lot of attention I've not learned this from myself but from other people really if you ever just meet someone who has a really um profound sense of place a profound awareness of of um of beauty and of terror and of pain and of you know a house that's falling and then a house that's being built if you meet people like that it it changes how you yourself see the world yeah, wow. I, I I could say more, but I'm I, I'm I don't want to rant, but yeah. No, you can say more, please do. <laughs> well, I just want to say, like, I I think so, so much pain happens from this um, alienation from one sense of place. You know, I've I I have experienced that on some level, of course, throughout ancestry, and um, my ancestors whose sense of home was taken. I don't know if I could have written about liberation I don't know if I can conceptualize liberation without some kind of restoration of what's been taken um or if it for those of us who it hasn't been taken a lot of us have had to leave have been forced to leave and maybe that's a form of theft in its own but um or a question of semantics but you know if, if one has to leave for some reason or if um one feels like they they don't quite belong in where they are or you know what people would call home there's this real sense of um I'm trying to use a different word apart from homelessness because I don't think that's a, a kind way to phrase this but yeah there's this weird this real um wandering that I think happens in our physical world that mirrors our interior wandering and our interior sense of dislocation and so if I'm going to heal that interior wandering that interior sense of you know um a lack of belonging a lack of fitting I, I'm gonna need to heal the 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 physical the very real physical conditions of my um homelessness for lack of a better word yeah. Well, in the book, you use the space, you know, the the term, you know, finding God in the liminal in space, in spaces. I've always used liminal spaces, but you put liminal hyphen in spaces. I don't know if you want to elaborate that. And is that connected to what you were saying earlier? Um, you know, I, I, an editor did that. I can't take oh, okay. for that. I'm not <laughs> sure why they did it, but I think I, I probably just hit, you know, let it be because I was so exhausted. Yeah. But I, I think that's so interesting that you've um that you've pinpointed that that the liminal in spaces. Yeah. Well, it's not going at me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually think that's I, I think I'll be thinking about that for for the rest of today because there is something beautiful to to think that, you know, a, a lot of times I can mistake myself into thinking about place as the liminal itself you know, as opposed to there being a, a, a liminality within the space that I occupy itself. This, yeah, that's, that's very, I'll have to think more about that. Um, well, you might have to come back to Madang then to share that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Bad, yeah. Yeah. And then when you talk about God and, you know, where do we find God? I just found it hilarious that you wrote, it took fancy theologians. And I thought that's like someone like me and <laughs> philosophers years to articulate God is in the streets. So I just thought, you know, that's what liberation theologians have told us, especially Latin American liberation theologians, that God is with us in the streets, that God is hungry, you know, and the one that 
doesn't have clothes. But the way you wrote fancy theologians and philosophers, years to articulate, you know, that God is in the streets. I don't know if you wanted to say more about that. And mm. I just had a huge chuckle when I read it. I, I'm glad. I'm glad that you chuckle. I, I, um, I, I, with that particular section, I was worried about some of my my previous bosses. One previous boss in particular, who I admire greatly. He's an academic. He's he's a historian, and I'm like, oh he's gonna either think I um have despised everything he's taught me or I've just been like laughing at him this whole time but no I think I, because again because I was encountering Christianity in these academic spaces I was sitting in these conferences and in these rooms with um a lot of people who were saying a lot of big words to say things that um shouldn't have to me shouldn't be all that revolutionary you know shouldn't be all that and and I think it's because of you know my household we, we might not have been Christian but there was a formation in terms of um there being a sense of sacred in everything we do you know in so when I went would go to conferences and people would break down the sacred and the secular I would think well yeah, I've never, I, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, and I, I don't like mean to say that like so glibly, but it was, I think not because of my own set, like was wisdom or sense of understanding. It was because of the, the elders in my life and the people I had seen who, who um, spoke about the divine as not tangential or not, um, so lofty but more so so necessary and just like the nitty-gritty details of life you know like how am I going to pay rent you know God's going to help me pay rent again like these are people who aren't necessarily I, I don't know if they can necessarily tell you what doctrine they believe I, I don't know if my grandmother could have told you necessarily what doctrine she believes about God I don't know if she could I, I don't think she could profess a creed but she had a, a, a sense for for some of these big um kind of theological talking points in her own daily lived experience and the simplicity of her life just like walking down a street in in the Bronx you know she was uncovering the same things that you know many people are paying a lot of money to to study yeah. <laughs> or, or, or think in that way I think both matter but that sense of like okay what have you know I think if 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 it's truth, it should be accessible in walking down the street. You know, it should be or moving down the street. However you move, if if it's if it's that true, it should be that clear to me, in my opinion. And I am guilty of like making things into these, you know, big intellectual ideas when actually they're quite simple and small and beautiful and have been inherited. Um, and passed down throughout generations, at least in my family. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I can talk to you all day about your book because there's just nuggets of wisdom in there. So I thought maybe we could end with, you know, I, I was happy to see that you brought in Bonhoeffer into your book. And then you said that, um, you know, you just, you don't just welcome you and accept you. We need you. We are insufficient without you. Belonging is a gift received and a gift given. You know, I thought those are powerful words because I think, you know, in the West, Western world that we live in, we're, you know, it's such an individualistic world. You know, the sense of belonging and community is very lacking and there's great consequences to this. Um, that is not necessarily found in the Eastern world, like in Asia, where community, you know, I write about community a lot, because it's so important. But I just thought, you know, when you think of it, and you wrote it as a gift, belonging is a gift received, and a gift given, I just thought, wow, that is so powerful. I don't know if you wanted to uh, expand on that and say more about what this belongingness means to you. Yeah. I mean, I think the language of it being a gift is is really important to to those of us who have felt like our presence has been a burden mm. and any belonging that we've been able to achieve has has felt like um yeah has felt like someone else is doing us a favor kind of by by, by letting us sit at the table it's um 
I, if you, if you read the book, you will get somewhat of a sense of this. I didn't have many friends as a child and had a very difficult time making, you know, forming bonds that, or at least bonds that weren't very brittle. And um, I think a shift in thinking, and so I'll say because of that, I developed a sense of hyper-independence, a, a kind of some of my introversion, I think, is very true to me, and some of my solitary life, I think, is kind of an echo of of the pain of being excluded, the pain of not belonging. You build up all kinds of defenses and, and ways to cope with that, especially if you experienced alienation or rejection as a child. Um, and I think it's taken time and effort for me to kind of rethink, okay, can I can I reframe this as not like someone's kind of bending down to pick me up and help me and say yes it's okay but actually that my um, inclusion could shift something into greater wholeness um I learned this from a, a dear friend named Michael Chen and he's yeah a, a dear friend he he's a theologian in his in his own right and um asked me um, in more ways than one to think about what it means that I um, how do I explain this? That I think of belonging to a group only as a, a place of, of healing and recovering and never as the source or like the, the origin of created goodness and the, the, um, the birthing ground for goodness and liberation. Like, it's not just the place where you like patch up your wounds and people tend to you. That's true. And that's so beautiful, but it's also, you know, I think our core access to liberation, people much smarter and wiser than me have said this, um, uh, Audrey Lord, without community, there's no liberation. She famously, famously says this, um, yeah. Because I, I truly don't think we can sustain ourselves alone as much as we would like. I mean, especially in some white Western conditions, as much as we would like to um, trick ourselves into believing that we can be sufficient and that we can do it, that we're capable, that we're ever, that we're whatever. There's always a cost. There's always a cost and self-love is beautiful. Okay, Jamaica Kincaid also says you know but that that's a cost no no one was meant to exist on self-love alone no one was meant to you, you can't survive on it alone it's not the right kind of air you know you need other other things in there um and so it's it's been a bit of a journey to to recognize that need in myself everything that's resisting me to form bonds because of that old you know six-year-old Cole fearing that rejection um, but ultimately, if you think about Black liturgies and what it's done for me, you know, people remark about my age and, you know, what I've accomplished with this book. And it's not to discredit my own talent, but it is to say there's just no way without a community of people like Black liturgies who see the value in my words and are like regularly advocating and going to bat for my words. I see them like... <laughs> Um, and, I, and I'm always taken aback of oh, this is what it means to have people who are fiercely protective of you. And this is with people I don't even know. So, uh, I mean, imagine that the fruit of that when there's um, deeper intimacy there. So, yeah. Wow, that's, that is so amazing. I thank you so much, Cole, for coming on Madang and for the gift of your book to the world. It just, you know, you share your vulnerability, your family stories and your theology in this book. I'm just so grateful for that. Thank you so much for the Black liturgies and how it just reaches out to hundreds and thousands of people all the time. So thank you for that. And I, you know, I wish you well. Are you writing another book? I am. I just turned in a manuscript rec uh, recently, actually, for wow. a collection of prayers and poetry and breathing um, meditation. So, yeah, still writing. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. You're doing everything that I wish I could be doing. So thank you so much for all thank that you, you do. I am I am so interested in breathing because I talk about that and I write about that a lot. So I look forward to that new book of yours and hopefully you may come back 
to Madang podcast and I hope to see you maybe in Ithaca one day. Yes. I think that would be great to meet you in person. Thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us. And I just wanted to announce that your book will now be uh, available in paperback um, in this month, at the end of the month. So thank you and congratulations that it's going on paperback. That will just, you know, widen the readership too. And I hope that people will continue to read your work online and in this book. So thank you so much, Cole. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Homebrew Christianity is having an open online class, Experiencing God, Discerning the Divine in Human Experience. It is from some of the recordings from Homebrew Christianity's famous Theology Beer Camp. Guests such as Diana Butler-Bass, Peter Enns, Adam Clark, and myself will be part of the class hosted by the one and only Prip Fuller. This class is free, but donations are welcome. Please do join this class. Yuzu no Hana is a premier Japanese restaurant in downtown Toronto with a focus on serving high quality sushi paired with delicious sake. The fish that are served are fresh from Tokyo's Toyosu Market and prepared carefully from the hands of our chefs who have an abundance of experience working in the best restaurants in Toronto and around the world. This, of course, is complemented by a world-class selection of sake that range from smooth to dry. We look forward to serving you. For more information, visit www.yuzunohana.ca. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.